everybody. Welcome to another episode of Call Your Brick Corner. Riley, do you know what time it is? It's Call Your time. Show time. It's close, close enough. Uh. It's already off the rails. I mean, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. So... This is Call Your Corner. For those of you who have not listened to our previous two episodes, it is a dive into a specific animal in the Colubrid umbrella that you probably might not have heard of. So it's kind of those rare fringe species that fall under Colubrid. So today, Riley, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the spotted scap steaker. Staker. Sticker, sticker, sticker. I don't. I Scap couldn't even sticker. get that. I couldn't even get that far. So <laughs> I got it. This, this is spotted. So. This is one of the rare occasions where the the Latin name is easier than the common name. All right, what's the Latin? Samophylax rhombiatus. Is this one of those things where everybody's just gonna be like, "You have a rhombiatus," as opposed to saying the sticker? <laughs> Probably. Or, Jesus Christ! All right. <clears throat> Yeah, so right. no. uh, other than that name, Spotted Grass Snake, Rhombic Scap Steaker, or if you want to get real real native with it, Geschbekeldes Scap Steaker. No, 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 I'm not. I would like easy. So um, it is a Collierbid-like, you know, body build. It's got that small, like barely you can kind of tell where the head and the neck kind of ended, mm-hmm. kind of all just one blend. Yeah. Um, it has some really nice spots and a really cool head pattern. So uh, where the hell is this thing from? So these guys are actually found um, basically in these little bits of uh, South Africa, so South Namibia, Lesotho, Swaziland, Southwest Angola, and they're they've got a, a pretty wide distribution out there, but okay. um, that it's only in that part of South Africa really. You won't find them all over. They're not super abundant, um, but you know they they like to inhabit a lot of the uh, the grasslands, the moist savannas, semi desert areas, and thinbos as they are called. Thinbos. All right. So the name, the scap sticker. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean? So um, it means sheep stabber or sheep stinger. Because as we know, human beings. Please please tell me these snakes just running around stabbing sheep. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what they do. Excellent. It's in their nature. They're little little sheep stabber snakes. And uh, no, so it was a common belief that these guys were killing um, a lot of sheeps in, in some of the villages when in fact it was actually the Cape Cobras in the area. Cause they, they overlap habitats with those little Cape Cobras around okay. there. So and, basically uh, a sheep yeah. gets bit by a Cape Cobra, Cape Cobra splits. The step sticker is the, in the area and it gets the blame. Yep. That's kind of shitty. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of yeah. shitty. <laughs> yeah. It sucks. Um, but well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? All right. Yeah. So, uh, when were these guys first described? So, from what I could tell, Linnaeus described them um, in 1758. So they are very early discovered. You know, some of the early voyages to South Africa, I would imagine. Okay. Um, and they were initially described as Colubrid rhombiatus. So they've always kind of been considered a colubrid, and they really haven't 
um, changed much. Okay. Um, you know, a hundred years later, somebody reclassified them into a different genus, uh, by the name of Dumeril and Bibron. Um, uh, all right, wait, D- they Dumeril and Bibron, was that the name of the guy or wait, that was two, two researchers all right. decided to reclassify in some, some of their work in the, the mid 1800s, it seems. Okay. And they reclassified it from cult. Colubr to Dipsis rhombiatus. It's okay. always been. It's pretty much always been rhombiatus. They took one left turn later on, but then it was uh, reclassified again into Samophylax rhombiatus. Um, that's where it's at. Yeah, and it, at one point they tried changing rhombiatus to Longimentalis, and then they brought it back to rhombiatus, but made a subspecies, and then they got rid of the subspecies. And <laughs> since 1995, it's just been Samophylax. Rhombiatus. One day we're going to have an episode where we're going to go through the nomenclature and it's just going to be like, this is what they have been forever. No one tried changing it. <laughs> Nobody walked in and tried naming it after their dog. Nobody did it. Everyone just kind of agreed. Like one right. day we yeah. will find that snake. It'll I'm happen. 80. No, it won't. <laughs> so Maybe. It's, it's sad now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, basically describe it so that i know that this is an audio medium so it's kind of hard to convey visual but yeah what are we looking at here so uh the two predominant colors are kind of like this olive green and a nice beige tan um we're looking at a snake that's you know between 45 and 85 centimeters so that's like you know a foot and a half to two and a half feet at most um Mm -hmm. maybe three feet occasionally reaching 147 centimeters so very small snake um and they usually have like rows of these like they call them rhombus shaped spots but they're basically like ovals uh and they go down and they sort of interlink and you know the the dorsal pattern reminds me of uh some rainbow boa dorsal spots and then they've got some side spots and and there's like little flashes of red in there too i think it's like a what is it like almost like chain king snake or something like that yeah 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 yeah, absolutely. And then it looks like those dots sort of blend together into to some striping. Um, you went straight to Rainbow Boa. Get that out of your head. <laughs> I'm surrounded by them. I'm surrounded. It's everywhere. Uh-huh. So, but yeah, right. they're 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 a pretty variable snake as far mm-hmm. as as far as that color and pattern. But they typically have those rhombus spots, those circles going down that connect in chains, um, and you know they sometimes make zigzag patterns. Um, their belly is like a yellowish white, um, mm-hmm. and the top of their head is kind of uh, a darker version of that yellow, kind of tan brown. And then they've yeah. got like a white collar behind the uh, the, the head, the, yeah. the jawbone, so it separates. Like the markings tend to show you where the head and the neck start, um, just incidentally. Yeah. And then uh, the <clears throat> males in this species get a little bit bigger than the females. So, but really? not by much. Uh, well, it okay. seemed to only be like twelve percent difference in size. So, okay, chances are you can't just look at them and determine gender based on size. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, any conservation status we need to be concerned about with these guys? Are they on the red list? They're not even listed. So now, is that because we don't know? Because a lot of times when we get there and we don't have any kind of red list, it's because we don't know enough about or nobody's done any kind of study to see the impact of the population. 
It would it would seem that it's just because it hasn't been studied, um, mm-hmm. and and I would imagine that's probably one limited resources. Two, there are probably bigger fish to fry, animals that need more help, and three, these guys might be in areas where they're quite abundant. You know, especially if they're being blamed for all the uh, the Cape Cobra biting snakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe they're they're everywhere. So I'm just like, yeah, we'll just blame these guys because they're around. Um, <laughs> sheep's but, dead there's a bunch of these things clearly they did it yeah. yeah so but you never know that can always change especially with environmental disasters and you know persecution from human beings which is apparently going on that can take quite a toll over time but yeah. um i would imagine if somebody were to do some research we would have a, maybe a different outlook on their overall status because just because it's unlisted doesn't mean it's not a problem. We just I mean, haven't we just haven't gotten around to researching it. It seems right, and they do seem to have a very large range, which would just kind of mm-hmm. dictate that maybe they're not ones that we necessarily need to be concerned about right now. But it also might mean because they have such a large range that there could be subspecies and breakups and things like that that we haven't even thought about with right. these kind of things. I mean, yeah, yeah, there could be there could be subspecies. To, depending on, you know, how diverse and isolated some of those areas are. Yeah. Yeah. And they are variable. So maybe some of that color variation is locale specific and we just, we just don't know. Um, But there's a lot of observations about them. There's a lot of folks that have seen them and researchers have, you know, come across them incidentally. And they're, they're, they seem rather common based on how many sort of like, um, little things come up about them, instances, occurrences, and whatnot. And uh, they are diurnal, so that would make sense. If there's right. people there, they're going to encounter yeah. them. If you're out researching something and you move something and there's one of these guys, I mean, you're going to find it, you know, yeah. even if you're not researching them, you're just going to kind of see it. So, sure. Okay. Yeah, and I would imagine, you know, local people come across snakes all the time all out the time. there. Yeah, yeah. It's a, that's probably one of, of those species. They're out there in the fields murdering the sheep. They come across <laughs> them all the time. <laughs> the nice thing is, though, these things are pretty shy. Um, okay. All, all accounts show that they are a very uh, prone-to-flee sort of species. So they will they will just dart under things, hide under rocks, uh, dive into the grasses or bushes to get away. They, they seem pretty small and, and slick. So I would imagine um, you're usually seeing them on their way out or if you surprise them. So like a coach whip, like it's one of those things of that. There it is. Well, there it was. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Like, a, like a tiny little spotted coach whip angry tiny little spotted coach whip i dig it <laughs> like that's yeah fine. i mean they're really pretty they almost have that look of like either a kribo or a garter snake in the eyes and the face and kind of the, the proportions of it all yeah. so they kind of have like an aggressive sleek the, the uh, head makes it look like a frog like it, yeah. it looks like a frog with yeah. a very long body <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just because the way that the head is, the green on the head just makes it look like a frog. So yeah. and it's adorable. So, all right. Well, speaking of frogs, that oh, happens no. to that <laughs> happens to be one of its uh, its favorite food items. Oh uh, no! All right. Well, it'll right. eat other things. It seems like it's rather generalist, but being so okay. small, it's probably got a limited That's what food get at. A menu. Yeah. But you know, all accounts were saying that it'll find little rodents, lizards, birds, probably baby birds, frogs, and other snakes, and. Uh, they they Good. seem to to be noticed for their ability to to dig through the sand 
and find little like toads and things that might be like hunkered down in the sand for moisture. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. It, it does have that kind of like almost spade kind of woma like head mm -hmm. where it, it looks like it could use that a little bit of its nose that protrudes out <clears throat> has kind of like some way to sift around the way like a woma does so yeah and with those big eyes i would imagine it's very movement based so it probably oh, yeah. uh, is very visually keyed in so it's probably able to like disturb you know areas where these animals are you know kind of probably hiding and banking on their their camouflage or or where and they jump yeah. yeah and then yeah they jump after <clears throat> them um another thing that was was documented was that uh some of some individuals of the species tend to like have a, a, a shift in their prey preference as they age. So okay. when the, so they have an ontogen ontogenetic shift. So as like as little guys, they're eating arthropods and little tadpoles and frogs and tiny lizards and stuff like that. But then as they get older and they can expand their their diet, they're more uh, inclined to eat rodents and. And things like that, other fish, uh, snakes, stuff like that. So, now you think that's just like a size preference where it's like <clears throat> the frog works for now, but as they get older, maybe they lose a step with speed. And now the mice are here, and also it's a bigger snake, would want maybe can think it can take down a bigger prey item. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I kind of feel like that would be the way because, uh, looking at it as from like a hog nose perspective. They take on the they take on the frogs until they get to the point where, um, I mean they take on the toads and the frogs and stuff like that until they get to a point where they can possibly take down like the deer mice that are running around and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So okay. I, I think that's exactly why they they see that shift in prey preference. And the snake eating thing, I think that's just got to be just I mean, opportunistic. Yeah, I, but how many? If we went through how many collier birds will eat a snake it just seems like color birds like don't care fit in my mouth like yeah. I don't, it doesn't matter what it is so yeah yeah especially yeah. if you know we're talking a wild animal that's very key for survival it needs it need whatever it is it doesn't matter yeah right because um, um, i can't get my creepo to eat snakes they don't they don't want my dead baby carpet pythons <laughs> but well, um maybe that'll be good when it comes time for breeding maybe yeah um, <laughs> I'm scarred. Long pause. I'm sorry. I'm scarred. <laughs> anyway, back to the scap speaker. Back to the thing, the, 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 the safe thing. Go ahead. <laughs> so, so another really unique thing about these guys is if there wasn't enough odd, you know, stuff going on with these guys is that they're, they're kind of uh, a rule breaker in their reproduction. They're not oviparous and they're not ovoviviparous. They're like, Wait, what the hell are they then? They're like a mixture of both. They lay eggs that are like partially incubated. And oh, that shit. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so they can lay up to 30 eggs. What? They're pretty, <clears throat> yeah, they're pretty small. They're not For huge. That, that tiny of a body. Mm-hmm. 85 centimeters. Um, is that in inches? Because someone's going to ask, and I know it is. 80, um, 85 centimeters? Yeah. I have no idea. You have no idea. All right, hang on. Let's <laughs> figure this but out. Hold on. These eggs are 20 to 35 millimeters by 12 to 18 millimeters. So we're talking about eggs that are like maybe the size of grapes. Okay, so 33 inches. So that's close to three feet. 
Yeah, they can get they can get that's around. That's as big as That's not bad. As, yeah. That's really not bad for a colubrid, but for that thirty something eggs. Yeah, and are so, you kidding me? I I really want to see what a, what the eggs look like. I wonder if they're like kind of soft and leathery more than uh, or they like more egg, than firm. Are they calcified? Like, is it just a clear sack that has the baby in it, like a bow? Yeah. I, well, and you know, there are some vipers that will will yeah. uh, lay those soft, clear eggs that hatch in like four yeah. days or whatever. Is I, it like that? I, I don't know. I'm really curious now. Well, God damn it! Now we. Well, God damn it! <laughs> I'm like, now we need to get some. Wait, we can't. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I, I think they're. I think they're shelled. But I, uh, I think the the females just do part of the cooking. I think they just hang on to them part way, and then it's, you know, another six weeks to go after that. Six weeks is not a long. It's like that's that's half python temp. I mean, dear God. Yeah, yeah. But so, she will she will maternally incubate the eggs. Um, it has been noted that they'll kind of lay around their eggs and stay with them and guard them. They don't do the same beehive thing like carpet pythons do, and they'll lay yeah. them under things for cover. And so okay. there, there, there are accounts of, of females uh, kind of wrapped and guarding around their eggs with other females next to them wrapped and guarding their eggs, too. <laughs> so they find the same area. They're in a really like, nice log, and everybody yeah. puts their eggs underneath it. Jesus. Yeah, so they seem to sit there. And then they're also uh, – they seem to go back to the, the same site. So they have some site fidelity behavior going on. Okay. So if they find a spot, they have a it's successful really nice. clutch, yeah, yeah, and it goes well and they're undisturbed, then uh, it's been documented they'll come back the next season and do it again. Wow. Yeah. All right. So it's pretty that's, neat to see uh, communal nesting. That's insane. All right. So why the – is any kind of pointing of why the clutches are so large? Like is there anything that kind of – Kind of gives us anything like that. Uh, you know, I would imagine that the habitat they're in and mm. and the research that said they didn't deviate from prey availability or opportunity throughout the year. Mm. So year round, there's food and, and opportunity out there. So, um, you know, if, it, if it's a genetic thing, like pre-programmed to preserve them and their lineage as much as possible, have as many babies and increase the odds of survival then, you know, that could explain why they have so many. And if those babies have food and opportunity year-round, then that's a pretty good chance of success. Um, and that, you know, maybe that's why they're also not researched enough to be on IUCN radar because they're that abundant. But well, yeah. I mean, if they're, if they're dropping 30 babies a clutch, dear God. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, like, these, these have been pr- reproduced in captivity, correct? I believe so i wouldn't say they're like in the hobby or anything like that but there have been happened yeah there have been folks that have uh found uh eggs and hatched them out like carried through the incubation and then there have been people who found females and they've deposited eggs so they've done the captive hatching sort of thing um i'm not 100 percent sure if there was like true breeding but there might have been and i think it was in south africa and some of these research facilities out there right okay um but uh, that being said, there isn't like a, a care sheet or anything available. It's all kind of um, 
I mean, you know how it is when you when you do something in the environment, you don't really have to try too hard because you're in. It's there. Their, yeah, yeah, you just do it. Yeah, it's let them do their thing. You just breeding, breeding corn snakes in Pennsylvania. Yeah, just open a window. Like, right. Yeah. So you know, you, you can imagine South Africa's climate. It's probably pretty warm most of the year. It's kind of um, I mean, yeah, it's it's probably similar. You know, dry season, rainy season. You know, probably not too much uh, temperature fluctuation throughout the year, and they're probably a pretty hardy species. Um, yeah, I would I would imagine if they were abundant, they would be pretty easy captives. Uh, I would guess. So okay, um, lifespan. I mean, what are we looking at here? That we don't know. Um, <laughs> I could not find anything like that. But you know, the more we we find out information about species we think we know, the more those numbers increase. So That's to say that it's like we, if you would ask me when I first started corn snake, I'd be like, yeah, fifteen to twenty. And now it's like I, I want to say corn snake's got to be what thirty, yeah. maybe a little bit beyond. Yeah, I would think a a good healthy corn snake could easily reach thirty years. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with a Puerto Rican bow that was healthy as an ox at 30. I've worked with 40-plus-year-old ball pythons that are healthy. I got to uh, say, snakes can do 30 to 40 standing on their heads. I think so, yeah, when given the opportunity, appropriate yep. diet. So with this species, you know, this is all going to be speculation for the listener. And if there's anybody in South Africa who happens to stumble across this podcast and is like, hey, I actually know, you know, some of the details, we'd love to hear about it. But as, uh, as ignorant Americans trying to learn, what we're going to do here is we're going to sort of speculate and kind of – uh, hypothesize how we think we would keep these animals based on what we've sort of gathered right. where, where they live. Yeah. So, Please, God, open up a dialogue with us. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. would like to know. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think the rest of our audience would get a kick out of, you know, if somebody happens to work with them overseas and they have some research papers, we'd love to share that. Because um, these are definitely not in U.S. or I would even stretch and say U.K. herpticulture, right? I think if... If they're outside of South Africa, they probably would only be in Europe somewhere. Okay. But I, I would venture to guess that, yeah, there's probably very few people in South Africa that work with them. So They're not in Australia, herp the culture. <laughs> we no. know that much. Yes. Um, but um, they are, uh, they seem to be documented as mildly venomous, but not aggressive. So okay. I don't know if that's a rear fang sort of thing. There wasn't anything that said anything regarding a Duvernoy's gland or anything like that, but I would imagine that would be the case. Like a hog um, nose kind of a deal? Yeah, probably. Right. You know, especially if they're eating a lot of frogs and tiny little things that they have to dispatch quickly and, you know, quit from wiggling around real fast. It seems if they're an amphibian eater, they have some sort of mild toxin that can mm -hmm. take down a toad or a frog. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine in captivity, you could probably have them successfully eating like really small, hairless mice pinkies things like that fuzzies maybe you could just go get toads you could get like, toads. toads you could get you could try the reptilinks the, yeah. the really small ones um i bet you i bet you scent. yeah yeah the frogs yeah. i bet you you know if you do it right it could work i would imagine they would do really well in a setup where like you give them uh, an open grassy area uh that's really hot like a good hot basking spot i bet you these guys like to sit out and bask from an overhead sort of heat source as opposed to a belly heat yeah it makes sense 
being diurnal out in these grassland areas, my my guess would would be they would like to crawl up on top of a rock somewhere in these fields, get some sun where they can keep an eye on the surrounding area and then be able to dart away into some, maybe some quick burrows or something like that nearby or a log. So you could, I think these, these would probably be a fun snake to see in like a nice bioactive open or just, you know, naturalistic terrarium where you, you light it up really well. You give them a good hot grassy area and some, you know, fallen logs and stuff i bet you they'd be pretty cute pretty cool to watch that would be cool yeah so all right so uh do we have anything else we can add here about the spotted scap sticker uh other than that that's kind of you know where where we're at that's what we've got there you know they can be communal as far as nesting sites go they're pretty chill they're not aggressive they have a diverse diet they're not oviparous, they're not ovoviviparous, and they're very beautiful, small. I, I, you know, they're pretty sweet, man. I don't know what else is, is out there as far as, like, captive details, but I would love to learn more. And if these ever got into into the United States herpiculture, I think these things would be a hit amongst colubrid enthusiasts because these things look like they'd be fun. And a three-foot animal, I mean, that's nothing to sneer at. I mean, that's that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. And uh, now, have there been, real quick, there one question I had that popped up like there is, um, are there other species of snake in Africa? Like, do you see other African colubrids kind of coiling around their eggs or just these guys? I think there are other species that will do that. Um, okay. I, I think, you know, we'll probably come across a few others that, especially these, these ground dwelling ones, cause there's a couple species of these caps, scap stickers. There's, there's a couple like little either localities or subspecies depending on where the classification mm-hmm. stands currently. So I would, I would find it hard pressed that only one species does that, you know, if, if it's perfect incubation weather out there, but there's predators, Maybe you some other the kids in one place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if there's some other colubrids out there because, you know, I've read documents about Madagascar giant hog noses sort of sharing communal nest sites in the same way and, and hanging out around their eggs. And, and so if a Madagascan species and a South African species, I, I would not say it's much of a stretch of the imagination to think that there are other species of, of South African and African colubrids that utilize that same technique. Yeah, no, no, I, that, I, I don't think that's a major stretch at all, which is why when you're saying it's mildly venomous, I'm thinking more of Madagascar mm-hmm. hog mild venom as opposed to, like, western U.S. hog. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, that does make sense. a little bit more of a punch, right? Yeah, and if it's sitting around <clears throat> a, a clutch of eggs and some rodent comes, you know, looking for a free meal or shelter and it doesn't want to be bothered, yeah, take it. Yeah, hold on, give it a dose, and and boom. Even if it doesn't eat it, its eggs are safe. Right, just just kill it and leave it for later. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, they're a pretty cool snake. I bet they would they would be fun to observe being diurnal. So that is awesome. All right, well that's another one, and the spotted scap sticker. <laughs> I, if I'm saying that wrong, whatever. This is yeah. Calibre Corner, and you're already yelling at me for saying the title wrong. So anyway. <laughs> Cool. All right, Riley. So uh, why don't you tell us who, what we're going to be talking about on the next episode? All right. So next week's episode, I think you and I are both probably going to enjoy as much as any of our listeners. And there's maybe mm-hmm. a few in particular who will really enjoy this. But next week, we're going to be covering the Slowinski's rat snake or the Slowinski's corn snake, Pantherophis Slowinskii. 
Yeah, that we we tied uh, Joe Phelan to a chair and tortured him until he told us all he knew. Yeah. So yeah, he's got a strong anyway. will though. He didn't break. We he just, did not. We just squeezed we a little bit. Of That's so weird. Yeah. yeah. yeah he could have just told us. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> so, uh, Riley, why don't you toss your stuff out there, and then I'll toss our stuff out there, and we'll get out of here. All righty. For me, it's just Riley's Reptiles on Instagram and Facebook and on YouTube under Riley Jimison, and that's about it. Cool. So, uh, Collier Corner is a member of the MPR network. If you go, please, over there and download all the different MPR network shows. That's Morelia Python Radio, uh, Carpet Cliff Notes, Student of the Serpent, who dropped their first episode on Woma Pythons recently. Go check that out. And, of course, us over here at Collier Corner with more shows to come. Also, go and give a like to Collier Corner on Instagram. We'll post up when new episodes are available, as well as pictures of the Collier that we cover so that you can go over there and kind of see for yourself what the hell they look like. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Also, if you guys see any cool Collier that you might want us to cover, please Tag us, send us an email, let us know. If it's not on our list of things that we will eventually get to, we will add it. Um, any questions you might have, also give us a shout over on the Caliber Corner Instagram. Uh, that's all we have for you guys this episode. So we'll see everybody next time. See, I'm already going to the NPR stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'll break myself. We'll see everybody next time for some more Caliber's talk at Caliber Corner. Thanks. Later. Later.